Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Animales humanos, animales humanos, animales, animales, animales humanos, animales humanos, animales, animales, animales humanos, animales humanos, animales. Good afternoon and welcome to 3CR Community Radio right across Victoria and Australia on 855am. This is Freedom of Species, regular Sunday program, and my name is Andy Medic, and um, I'm in the studio today with Roy Taylor, the inimitable Roy Taylor, extraordinaire, panellist extraordinaire. Good afternoon, everyone. And also we have a very special guest this afternoon, a young lady by the name of Alexandra Sedgwick who is an extraordinary person who was a first-year science student at Deakin University who saw the cruelty going on with all of the experimentation and vivisection on animals and saw that this was an unnecessary thing to be going on and formed an organisation called Cruelty Free Labs Australia. Um, We'll have a chat with Alexandra shortly and we'll get... um, She formed it a few months ago and I'd like to find out from her in her own words where the organisation is at now and how the reasons behind getting it started and, and, and the journey along the way up to now, given it's still only a fairly fledgling organisation. So welcome, Alexandra. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. So before we get into having a chat with Alexandra, um, let's hear a promotion, if you would, Roy. Hi, it's Patty Mark from Animal Liberation Victoria on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55 a.m. I love community radio. It's so important we keep an independent voice out there, not only for the animals, but for all humans, for the environment. And make sure you listen to Freedom of Species. It's animal activism on the airways. Hello, everyone. Everyone, Welcome back. And as we are saying just before that, uh, we have Alexandra Sedgwick here. Um, hi, Alexandra. Hi. How are you doing? I'm good. Really happy to be here. Thank you. Fantastic. So, look, if I understand how things uh, form, formed correctly, um, you were a first-year student at university at Deakin, yes? Yeah? Science student? Um, I was. And I guess as a vegan, I was just going through the motions Uh, A lot of people get out of dissection by saying they have a religious objection and I reached a point of feeling like what was the point because the same number of organs or animals are being ordered for that amount of students and I felt like it was just really unnecessary and a lot of people didn't believe in it anymore. Okay, fantastic. So we look. anyone who's been on social media or, or paid any attention, I suppose, over the last 15, 20 years will have seen any number of um videos, movies, um, YouTube videos, demonstrations happening 
in the US of, of people who um, have been against um, vivisection research on animals in the name of science, I don't suppose that that many people would have thought that that would have been going on in Australia. Is that a fair thing to say? Well, the amount of animals we've been using in research has been increasing every year for the last 11 years of available data, and yet most Aussies who I meet are like completely shocked that we even use animals here. It's, it's that belief that that wouldn't happen in Australia, that must be happening in a bad country like America or you know somewhere mm. else. Um, and especially for students, I think, entering veterinary medical science fields, that you know, it's quite disheartening to realise where it's at at the moment. And, and, and what species are we talking about? I don't think there's any species that has been left alone um, in this industry. We only have four states even reporting currently. It's completely voluntary. There's absolutely no transparency. Um, it can take three, four years to even find out about the study, you know, after it's already ended and already happened. Can I ask a question? Mm. I'm curious. Is there anything said in the university prospectus or open day or prior course information about what students are going to have to do with regards to animals do, they, do you know up front or um, is there any information given? Yeah, so a lot of unis will say either you have to do dissection, there's no way around it. A lot on their websites will say you can object if you don't want to participate and we have alternatives, but that wasn't my experience and I've never actually met anyone who said that they walked into a prac and said, I have a you know an ethical objection and the you know, um, professor said, yeah, no worries. For me, it was being humiliated. Most people I've met have been given ridiculous tasks to do, like a you know 10,000 word essay instead of you know dissecting a rat or something. So there's definitely um, it, it reaches a point where people don't want to speak up and don't want to sorry don't want to be singled out, I guess, in front of their peers. Is so, the university wanting people to say before they join the course? But of course, if you do that, you might lose your chance to get on the course. I presume. I guess uh, the. The place I've reached now in my mind about it is that we have these alternatives. We're the only country that isn't investing money in, um, I guess, replacing the use of animals. Um, most people won't even bother to see if something else exists. And part of the reason is that when you're training, you're always using animals. Um, and you end up with this mentality that we have a need for it when we really don't. Um, and I think people just get very desensitised. Um, most of the support for Cruelty Free Labs has come from the younger not younger in age, but younger as in new to their sort of degree students because once people have been doing it for four or five years, they just are completely shut off Ment like mentally. They don't have a, an emotional connection with those animals at all. And also, presumably, once you've done the dissection or vivisection for a couple of years, whatever, whatever you're doing, once you've done it for a couple of years, it becomes a bit hard to then turn... Well, it's going to be hard anyway. It's increasingly harder then to turn around and say, oh, I've suddenly got a moral objection to doing this. They can say, well, you've just done it through first and second year. How can you objecting now? Yes. Yeah, well, that's, I think, why I've struggled so much to break through is because you're criticising people and you're, criti I mean, you're criticising the decisions they've made for their whole career. So to turn to your professor and say you have a, an ethical objection with, I guess, killing animals to possibly come up with some treatment for humans or, you know, whatever, um, to them that's you know, a slap in the face. Um, people who go through life being so respected and really never being questioned by anyone to have, you know, some 18-year-old saying, I don't agree with this. It's, yeah, it's um, it's really difficult. So, yeah, of course. So there's a real elitist attitude and a prevalent there to, to looking down upon you for having a different opinion. 
I, yeah, I think so. And I think also there's so much, there's a financial incentive for things to stay the way they are right now. And people still think that, I don't know why, that university is really based around education. They're not, they're businesses. We long ago adopted the American model and they're there to make money. And if you're using animals, you're more likely to get grants and funding and to change that and put, bring in an alternative with something that you then might not be winning grants. Like unis just want to have people doing writing papers out of their uni and bums on seats. And that's basically the end game. <laughs> Well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that it's it's it is now a business, um, because that sort of leads into my next question: the supply of animals to the universities. We hear um, stories of of breeding facilities all around the country that are actually in the business of supplying either cadavers of of, of animals or live animals to unis. How prevalent is that, to your knowledge? Well, um, I think unis are definitely taking advantage of other industries that exploit animals. And then obviously there are industries on the outskirts of research that are also, I guess, benefiting um, from using animals in research. But unis will find a way to sort of get animals however. And it's not really regulated um, and certainly like records and stuff. It's just really hard to find out how it's how it's, how it's happening. Mm. And, and one of the things that I brought... I guess yourself and and cruelty free labs into the spotlight was a couple of months back there was uh, the f- half page or the front page of the age where they had a photo of yourself and and went into the article from beyond there and I remember about a week possibly two weeks after that they ran a second story which was about how they were taking greyhounds in at Melbourne Uni and doing all sorts of awful um, experimentation on them there how have things sort of snowball for cruelty free labs and yourself since then since that that exposure i suppose to uh the mainstream of society you know because people buy these papers you know and and because there's always going to be um through social media etc um a certain amount of animal activists um different uh, animal rescue and rights organizations that will have known about what you've been doing but how has the general public has there been an expansion and awareness if you like um, it's, it's been a bit of both, I guess. Um, a lot of people that have been very supportive openly on social media are students and people who have the understanding already that the that alternatives exist. But, um, for a lot of people, there's that mentality of my sick child that's in the hospital right now that needs a cure for, you know, some rare disease they have, you're killing my child. So mm-hmm. that is a part of it. Um, it is really important, I think, to educate people that, using animals is not actually the best method either. Like a lot of human studies and trials have been really held back and people have been really hurt or died from, you know, using drugs that worked really well on animals. Um, So that's part of it as well. But I think on the whole, it's gone really well. I think people are kind of excited to see lab animals getting a bit of attention because it's not that organizations haven't existed that have, you know, done campaigns for lab animals. It's just that they haven't got that attention and it hasn't been a popular issue really until now. Okay, so I mean, one of the the big things that was um, part early on, I know, of when you got started was was social media. Um, how big has that following become on social media now? I don't think that the cruelty free labs page is as big as the video was that went really viral because it was on a lot of different places. And I'm a big believer in that into sort of just get things out there by ever any means possible um, and sort of collaborating with other groups and other people who have that following. I think that it's only going to get bigger though, because it's just 
you know, it's something that people seem to be getting quite passionate about, which I'm surprised. I really didn't expect that it would get such a positive um, reception. And, and you were saying also, and it's one of the things I'm curious about, is um, that um, there that there are other alternatives. And, and, and this research that's being done on animals doesn't lead or doesn't necessarily lead to a result for humans. I mean, where does that happen? I mean, because we're, if, if we believe what we see on, on, on in mainstream media and, and on TV, you know, this, this, and, and the, the, this, the, the enormous amount of fundraising campaigns against, for cancer research, et cetera, et cetera, um, we're led to believe that this is essential research to cure, as you were talking about, um, obscure diseases or, or any number of cancers, and yet we continue to see really not any breakthrough. So what is it? Why is it that we continue to experiment on animals? Why is it that we're not getting the results in humans then? What's the disconnect there? I think, you know, this is a conversation that's a little bit beyond the scope of what I can probably talk about because it's such a complicated issue. Um, I guess we have alternatives for a lot of different things that we use animals for, um, but Australia also isn't investing any money in coming up with others. But if you look at the numbers, I guess it's a, it's about 7 million animals that we're using in experiments every year. Um, and we have cured a lot of human diseases like AIDS and different cancers and stuff in animal models multiple times for actually sort of a long, a long time. Um, and still it doesn't translate. I think it's almost a habit. You know, people think, oh, well, we've always used rats or mice or rabbits or cats or dogs for this. So that's how you do this kind of research. So someone entered, you know, in their grad year or whatever and just thinks like that's the way to do it and no one's actually took a step back and said is this actually working does this make sense is this you know even a logical um path to be following I think just everyone's going along with it and no one's sort of willing to admit that we've been wrong this whole time Mm. so it certainly sounds like the whole practice is raising more questions than it's actually solving yeah, definitely. And also I think it's turning away students who may have cured those diseases. Like I've met so many people who have just left their degrees. They've been, you know, they've reached a point of where they they felt their ethics were compromised and they've left. So a lot of people who um, I've met who wanted to focus on environmental stuff or medical veterinary, they end up leaving because they're sort of, you know, not wanting to kill animals just to get their piece of paper and when you go to uni because you want to make a difference and have, I guess, a positive contribution to the world, you don't want to have to kill animals to do it. Yeah, that's fair enough. Look, at, at this point, shall we have a song then, Roy? Yeah? Yes. Uh, we've got some U2 lined up, yes? We do. We do. I, I should explain to everybody, um, of late in my car, I've been reliving the songs of the my 1970s and 80s youth. So um, if you see a strange-looking man driving along in a Ford Falcon you singing along really loudly and badly, well, that'll be me. Um, so in keeping with that theme, um, we've got uh, U2's Sunday Bloody Sunday um, just because it's Sunday. That was uh, U2 Sunday Bloody Sunday. That was from the album War, I remember, um, buying that and just absolutely playing it to death. So... We have, um, as our guest, as we said before, Alexandra Sedgwick, we've heard a bit about um, what cruelty-free labs is um, and a bit about how that was formed and the reasons why it was formed and, and, and the factual information surrounding that. So what we'd like to do now is 
in in your words, Alexandra, like this has been a real uh, awakening, if you like, for yourself. There's been a real journey involved in this. How did you come to this? What actually made you come to this point where you felt you had to form Cruelty Free Labs? I think originally when I, I contacted PETA Australia, they I saw a post, I think, where they were offering universities free um, replacements for dissection software and for, for students at uni, you know, for, uni, for science degrees, uni students. Um, I contacted them and they gave me all the stuff to trial and I had a meeting with um, the dean of my uni and I had a public protest for that day and it did went pretty crazy on social media in the lead up and in my mind the public pressure you know the sort of spotlight being on them and offering all of it for free um, through Peter which is you know millions of dollars worth of software I didn't think they could possibly ever say no and I was so shocked at how they handled the situation well how poorly I guess the situation was handled and I I had asked to bring someone with me and he'd said no which now I just think was such as a stupid decision because really it was just getting me alone and trying to intimidate me for about an hour and a half. And I've since met other students who have similar things happened to. And when I realized that was pretty much the go-to tactic, if someone wants to question something you're doing at your university is to just try and scare them. So they stop talking about it. It kind of motivated me to um, take it further and push it harder. But yeah, it, it wasn't. Can I, can I just ask? Yeah, I'm curious. You say intimidate you. What What was that interview like? You'd You'd asked to bring your friend. They'd said no, and then where was the meeting held? Who was there? I'm, I'm really curious about mm. that. So it was the dean of the um, science faculty, and yeah, it was pretty much just telling me that I was never going to be you know, a real scientist, no one would ever take me seriously, that I'd run an emotional campaign that wasn't based on facts and that I was, I don't know, that I'd been dishonest in, I guess, creating so much media attention around Deakin because he felt that they were already a cruelty-free university. But it very quickly became a bit of vegan bashing and he was saying how, you know, if everyone was to go vegan then we'd have to cut down all the forests. And so he had a he already had definitely a complex about me. He had every post I'd like ever posted on Facebook printed out in, you know, huge things where he'd highlighted bits and pieces. For a scientist he doesn't sound particularly well informed on the industry on the effect of the meat industry. Well, yeah, I don't know if, if he's currently involved in research or if he's sort of reached that point in his career where he's just, you know, running the university. Uh, yeah, so, admin. Yeah. yeah, I don't know how how up to date he is with. So that was you and him for over an hour, yeah? Yeah, it was almost an hour and a half. Crikey. Yeah. <laughs> and he didn't even want to see the software. Like, that was the worst part of it. I'd gone there to demo it and hoping to – because it is pretty amazing. Like, you're not expecting it to be um, of the caliber that it is. And, yeah, he wasn't interested in seeing it. And he was more just trying to convince me to post a statement – through my social media account saying that Deacon was already cruelty-free and that I'd done the wrong thing, basically. So you are damaging their brand, it would seem. Well, that definitely, in hindsight, was all that happened. But at the time, it felt like I had... I don't think I've ever felt like someone hated me so much. <laughs> like it, um, And I guess in the aftermath, like a lot of people who I felt were my friends and, you know, colleagues and my peer group, I guess, to, you know, walk through uni and just get death-stared by so many people and to really feel like... I was completely alone in, in how I felt, but 
you know, in about the week after that, I was getting contacted by so many people who were sort of saying, I can't publicly support you because I will be fired, but I agree with what you're doing and we do not agree with how this has been handled. And it made me sort of realise that maybe, I don't know, it just needs more of a push. So, so there was a real sense and, and, and a, not even so much, not in a sense really, there was an actual reality of private support but public derision almost. So was that like – did you feel very intimidated? In, in the interview, like what was his manner, the dean's manner? Was he was he um, like aggressive or was he just sort of trying to be factual and just you know, denying what anything you had to say? I think it started off as very controlled because I think – both of us went in there thinking we had a really clear idea of how things were going to go and then it kind of just unraveled and it got to a point where I was sort of just sitting there quite like not even speaking because oh, I just wanted to leave. You both had uh, ideas on which way it was going to go but they were both different directions, yes? Mm. Definitely. I think in his mind it was to sort of make me think that I was an idiot and completely alone in how I felt and that, you know, my career was over and I should just be quiet and you know, not like not pursue it any further. And in my mind, I was going to sit down with someone who, of course, would be completely rational and willing to talk about it and make some changes at uni. So, so how were your feelings going throughout that meeting? Oh, I just wanted to leave. Like, I, I hate even admitting that now because, um, you know, I think when you're not in the situation, it's really easy to be like, yeah, I can stand up to that. That's fine. But when you're just being sort of berated, it, it reaches this point where you do sort of believe it and you just sort of regret. I don't know. <laughs> well, especially when the parameters have already been set that you're going to be in there on your own. And mm. then this is a guy who is, from the sounds of things, gone through the university system. He's ascended the ladder. He has a certain amount of ego and intimidation by the sounds of things on his side. So, yeah, that must have left you feeling pretty deflated and, and, and you know terrible like absolutely terrible were you actually and maybe even feelings of self-doubt was am I actually going down the right path was there any of that oh definitely I felt awful I was pretty much hysterical for the next two days and every time I had to do an interview I was like trying to get out of it because I just didn't even want to talk about it anymore I wanted to just like pretend it never happened and everyone was like you've just got so much media attention for lab animals no one's ever done this this is amazing you have to keep going you have to keep pushing you have to and I was like everyone needs to leave me alone because you're trying to make me do something I do not want to do. And it took me a little while to realise that, you know, it was just uh, what happens when you're kind of mentally messed with. Yeah, and emotionally too. Yeah. 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 So I'm curious what happened next. You left the meeting over the next few days. What was, what was the, uh, you said the media? Well, I went home and over the next two days I had almost a thousand messages through my different social media accounts. Wow. And a lot of these people were like, I support you, I've witnessed this thing sort of thing or I tried to stop this happening or I've been, you know, and I just realised that there were actually so many people who I guess have been waiting to have a voice and who have a lot of information that they are over it. They're not seeing any changes happening and they want, you know, whatever they've been a part of to stop at whatever, you know, whatever institution they um, are studying at or doing research at and... Even just from other students contacting me saying that they'd had the exact same thing happen. Like people calling me and being like, "My, I tried to stop, you know, some piece of training that was using animals happening at my uni and basically got taken alone into a room and same thing and just intimidated and threatened with being kicked out. And Wow, sounds like it, mm. you're saying it's, it, from what you're hearing, it's a standard policy or way of proceeding. Yeah. Not a written down policy, but a way of proceeding. No, not, yeah, I think it's... 
just ridiculous. Mm. Mm. So you, those those people that were you know giving you these messages of support, that obviously would have then buoyed you up a little bit, yeah, and 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 I suppose given you a bit of impetus to continue with with cruelty free labs to keep it going, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I'd say that. I would say that I hadn't realised that it had become a bit of an obsession and that even when I made the decision, okay, I'm going to just chill for this for a second and regroup, I can't. That's sort of why I ended up deferring because I would be in my lectures and be in prax and just get messages off people and just leave because it became, I guess, a priority. Um, I don't even know how to describe it. It still is. It's like I feel like I can't walk away and I'm sort of way too far down the rabbit hole to, I don't know, it's just... So what's your current situation? You're currently deferring a year or... Um, yeah, so I ended up deferring because I just didn't really have time to be doing a double degree and trying to run an organisation. Um, so I was like, I'll focus on this and then if I fail, then I fail and I'll go back to uni and if I succeed, then I'll definitely go back because I'll actually want to be there and be able to do my degree um, without having to hurt animals to do it. Um, but we only recently became incorporated and as, as a charity, which has taken a lot of work and, and is really exciting. Also, Cool Free Labs has ambassadors, almost I think about 35 different students from around Australia who are studying science um, and medicine and, and veterinary courses and who I guess support Cool Free Labs. But my main focus is I'm making a documentary at the moment. Um, oh, right. Yeah. So I kind of reached this point of that the public wasn't aware of what was happening and it really needed to be exposed and people needed to know, I guess, what is happening right now in Australia to all these millions of animals. And then I hope that when people find out, they will decide that it needs to end. <laughs> and, and, and you mentioned as well um, the, the, the Peter you know, willing to donate uh, the software program. Um, so there's obviously alternatives. What what are the alternatives what to, to this ingrained culture? Well, the thing is CFLA is not really focused on that. Um, Organisations that do that have existed for a really long time. Um, so like Mawa Trust has been around 50 years, um, HRA, you know, Human Research Australia. They do so much work in that where they sit down with unis, like same with Peter Australia, and show them software and say, we will pay for this, we will give you whatever you want, and they don't want it. They're, you know, it's like yelling at a brick wall is just not going anywhere so I saw it as if I was going to start an organization for lab animals I didn't want to repeat the same thing that's already being done by three or four other organizations in Australia I this is much more um direct action focused much more focused on students and staff coming forward and talking about what's happened um and I guess I hope cruelty free labs can be that push that then other organizations can have a little bit more um wins I guess when they I'm curious so the organization is your focus on in education or research because there's a different quite a different focus on a dissection for a student cohort learning about anatomy and then the ongoing research in universities is it both of those or just one of those yeah it's both so it covers all use of animals in stem in science whatever field so it is about wastage animals and wastage organs that are coming from other industries that exploit animals um whether that be you know greyhounds horses uh organs from knackeries and and slaughterhouses um animals that are bred specifically specifically for dissection um and yeah it's training it's research it's everything wow 
Okay. Um, do we want to have another song then? Is that what you want to say? Or have yeah, we got that, another yes. promo? Yes, sure, let's go to another song. Yeah, okay. I believe you've got some Smiths for us. I do, yes. yes. It's uh, Sunday afternoon at the old folks' home today. It is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. Um, look, I, I absolutely love this song. It's what probably got me to um, into the Smiths in the first place because I just love Johnny Marr's guitar at the start of this song and it's uh, How Soon Is Now. Good afternoon, everybody. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. And that song was The Smiths, How Soon Is Now, head fronted by the very famous Mr Morrissey. Um, He's been in town recently, hasn't he? He has, he has. And and he does these things that he shows where he plays that song, Meet Is Murder, and he has videos playing in the background, and a lot of people tend to walk out during that. So he's been at it for a long time. He has. He's been a great ambassador. For the course, really. He certainly has. Yeah. Yes, he certainly has. He's a bit of a moody bugger, I'm told, but, you know, aren't we all? Can be at times. <laughs> <laughs> so we are also um, got a very special guest here, Alexandra Sedgwick, who is the founder of Cruelty Free Labs Australia, and we've been talking with her about how and why she formed that organisation. And we've heard a little bit about... Um, you know her journey, the the the, the meetings that she had with the deacon, uh, sorry, the dean of of that faculty, the science faculty, and um, and I guess look, like what now? I suppose what's next for you? I guess for me, I've I've just I guess decided to take on the job of exposing what's happening and to keep going with the social media stuff um, as part of that. I think before I even entered my head to do anything with lab animals I've always been really interested in you know throughout history people have started revolutions and and how that's happened especially recently everyone has an iPhone or some smartphone and everyone has Facebook and you can reach millions of people quite easily um but you have to be entertaining so I'm a big believer in that in running animal rights campaigns there has to be something that really pulls people in and make it and make it into a good story um so, I mean, it's been a learning experience, but also it's been kind of exciting to feel like maybe I was just sort of born at the right time when, you know, these, these things exist and you can just access a lot of people and, yeah, it's it's quite cool, I think. Um, a thing that I've always thought is we are at the start of the animal rights movement. I mean, in my, I mean, we're not at the right at the start if you include the points of view of people like um oh pythagoras i believe was vegetarian hmm. or so i've been told um and um uh, jeremy bentham and and the other philosophers that have influenced the animal rights movement leading up to peter singer 30 40 years ago however long it was but we're still relatively at the start so i've always thought like what we do now as as um we've probably got more effect per demo that we go to or a leaflet we give out than someone in 20, 30 years' time because we are relatively at the start and we can choose the direction or set a direction for the movement. I think it's quite... It's very exciting. Empowering, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and Alexandra mentioned too, um, you know, it, it, she thinks it should be entertaining. That's right, yeah, you said. that. You know, we need to engage, I suppose, is the core theme of that, you know, being able to engage. Because, I mean... I, I often speak to um, to people from coming from an animal justice party perspective about politics, and, and I firmly believe that 
you're right, Roy. We we are having to set the agenda now. You know, we can we can determine right now the way that this all goes into the future, and legislation is part of that. Um, but it's not going to be people, I suppose, like you and I who who do that. You know, politics at the moment is full of fifty plus middle aged men making decisions for people. I was listening to uh, uh, BBC World Service yesterday morning yeah. and they were talking about the American election, for instance, and they're saying how the single largest voting block in the United States at the moment is the millennials, the people aged 18 to 26, and yet they are the single most disengaged voting block in the United States because they don't believe that the people who are in charge, i.e. people like me, my age group, are actually going to listen to them and change anything. And it's it probably, I mean, Alexandra, you're from that age group, yeah? Yeah. Um, can you, Is that a situation that exists here in Australia? Is it the same situation? Oh, definitely. I think, oh, I remember growing up, I can't even tell you how many prime ministers we had, and yet it was always the same. So I think even when we got old enough to vote, I can't even tell you how many of your friends don't even vote because we're like, what's the point? It's the same shit, reheated. Sorry, I shouldn't swear probably, but just same person doing the same thing, telling the same lies, nothing ever changes. And I think people have a very negative view of millennials, if you like, definitely the butt of a lot of jokes. But I think we're just disillusioned and we don't want to invest any trust in, I don't know, politicians, people on TV, the media, anything. And because of social media, a lot of people in my age bracket have kind of taken things into their own hands and said, you know what, we think this is newsworthy, we think people should know this is happening and we're not going to wait for big media stations or politicians to, I don't know, fix things. Because, I mean, I did grow up feeling like generations that came before me have destroyed the world and ruined my children's futures and, you know, probably they wouldn't even have children, like really, the way, where things are at right now. And there's that feeling of, I mean, a lot of people probably feel like it's too big a job, but... There are a lot of us in the sort of early 20 bracket who have been, you know, like, no, you know what, we need to stop this right now and stop waiting for people um, that have come before us to fix these problems because they're probably not going to, no. I think. So, so do, you think, do you think it's a situation of that, because I certainly do, that people from your age group need to be that next wave in the political sphere to take this animal rights and animal activism from where it is now to that next stage and bring it into the political sphere and make the legislation that's going to bring about these changes? I I hope that would happen. That's always been something I've hoped for lab animals, that if there was enough public support and everyone knew it was happening and everyone was very outraged that that could force um, legislation change. But I don't know if I would ever approach that way directly and I don't know if many people that I know would either because there's definitely that lack of there's not really an expectation that anything would change if it was, you know, trying to go through Parliament. It's just, yeah. But, I mean, that's obviously just my perspective. But as I said, a, a lot of my friends won't even vote because they just think it's really pointless. And it doesn't mean we don't have an understanding of world issues or politics or anything. Mm. It's just what's the point? Like we're being manipulated and nothing's happening sort of thing. Yeah. But it's not, I mean, I made it sound very depressing. I think it's more a liberating thing when you're like, you know what, I should take this into my own hands, otherwise it won't happen. And I know a lot of people like that. I like that actually about millennials. I like this whole situation of, well, you know, I can do this, I can change things. That That's the attitude that I like and I'd, I'd like, just a personal thing, I'd like to see 
more of, of your age group become involved because Roy and, 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 and people like us, we can, in, this in my perspective, is that you know, we do have a certain maturity. We do have an understanding of how the world works and that sort of thing. Some of my friends may dispute that's about me, by the way. <laughs> well, I can only take people as I find them, and you know. Um, but, you know, we are in a situation where we can set this agenda, but we need uh, help to change what's going on out there. And we're all part of that. And I would love to see younger people come through and take over Parliament. I'd just like to see those boring old guys in suits shown the door and, and new perspectives come in because we're certainly not going to change the planet and move towards veganism, if you like, worldwide while there's people sitting in Parliament saying how wonderful it is to have brown coal power stations and things like that, you know, just that whole perspective, this whole... that There has to be a paradigm, a mindset shift to change things. And... I take my hat off to you, Alexandra. I, I think what you've been doing is extraordinary and I encourage you to keep going. Thanks so, so much. So, yeah. So what's next then? Well, my time is definitely full with making this film. I didn't realise going into it what it takes to make a documentary. Um, definitely not a lot of sleep and it's a very kind of emotional experience, but it's all moving really fast and it's, very exciting. So probably I'll be releasing early 2018, I think. And I'm hoping that, um, I guess, what I've learned along the way and my previous sort of understanding of social media and advertising and how to really make something cause, I don't know, a bit of a media frenzy, that it will reach that point of sort of pushing some kind of change. I feel like we need it as well. Like in animal rights, we need a win. Like I've seen so many amazing campaigns where – you know, I've thought, oh, this could actually happen, and then it doesn't. And people, I think, when you devote your life to animals, it can be a very depressing thing to do because um, of the, I guess, the time we are in right now. But yeah, I, I feel like this can be done. I think it, it just hasn't, people haven't tried to do it. A lot of the big organizations maybe thought it was a bit of a harder issue and a tough win and didn't try, but I've found it pretty easy so far. So I, um, not easy, but definitely doable. I think it's just been sort of ignored, maybe. Hmm. So after the film? Well, I mean, I would hope that definitely we would have changes after that. If we don't, I think I'd have to regroup and, yeah, I don't know. I'm not a believer in, like, the slow sort of hard slog over many years. I remember when I f – I've only been vegan about 18 months and when I first started doing activism at the beginning of the year, I remember someone saying to me, oh, you know, you have to look after yourself so you have longevity because, you know, when you're, you know, 80, you need to be able to still go and protest. And I was like, are you kidding right now? There is no way we're still going to be doing this. Like well, this is – veganism is totally logical. It makes sense. Um, and, yeah, I definitely think that we will have – a completely vegan world and we can change all this stuff in a really short amount of time i don't yeah i don't see this as a lifelong sort of career path um i just yeah and how long i reckon five years like i always thought five years i think that when you get to that sort of breaking point of like even right now there's becoming so many vegans even if you look at melbourne that there's starting to be that conflict of different people have really different ideas of how things should go and people kind of butt heads. But I think that's just a sign that we're getting to that point of where there are so many vegans and so many activists that no one's really under the control of one group or being led by one group. And then 
when you look at other revolutions that have happened, you reach that point where people are pretty much like riding in the streets and then either you all go to prison and you fail or you win. Like that's how you, you bring about a change. And I see animal rights as like that. It's not a slow changing laws here and there and trying to introduce, you know, little changes over a 50-year period of time. I think that it's going to be a much quicker but probably much more dramatic thing because – I don't know. I think with animals, you feel like you've been misled. There's that anger of it, of that you've grown up your whole life doing something that you completely, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a different process that goes through. Um, it's a period of, I guess, growth when you first become vegan and it really changes you. It makes you see things for how they really are. And there's definitely that disconnect from your community and your family and your and your close friends and just feeling like this is really wrong and it's sort of, I don't know, it's hard to kind of explain, but I think it makes people way more outgoing. Like I was never, would never have pushed myself like this until I was vegan because, yeah. So would you say you've you've had some personal benefits from your activism? Yes, and I think everyone should do activism. I know, I mean, everyone? Yeah, I think there are a lot of vegans who don't get into activism and activism is like the the cure for that depression that comes with being vegan and being so aware, walking down the street and just seeing people and not being able to help yourself, just being so aware of the animals that they're wearing or eating or it's just constantly in your face and activism is how you can regain some sense of, I think, self-empowerment, I guess, that you do lose, I think, from veganism. I'd like to say... I agree totally with that. Um, just after I went vegan, I came across some political badge stall. I don't know. If, oh, I remember it was in it was in Friends of the Earth, just down the street. Okay. And I was I don't know what I was getting getting something to eat. And I saw the badge, and my vision just focused on it. And this badge suddenly became much bigger because it said a thing that just resonated with me. It said, "Action: The Antidote to Despair." I thought, oh, "What a great slogan!" Mm, I'm loving that's that. Awesome. Yes. And and that's exactly what you're saying there. Yeah, I think it's I think it gives people so many skills as well that you would not get in any other thing in your life really. Um, I just yeah, I think that people of, of all ages should be encouraged to. I don't know. Oh, absolutely! Yeah. I, I, I agree 100 percent with both of you. I mean, there's there is no doubt that your personal emotional health is um, positively affected by taking part in some form of activism because you come away from that, A, knowing that you've you've helped an animal or animals somewhere along the line because you've drawn attention to the plight that they're in. And secondly, you've been, you know, you've been in, in concert with like-minded people and and you you that that uh, emotion feeds off itself and each other and allow and, and it gives you a lift it really it makes all the horrors and, and and all the horrible things that you might have to face in that next part of your week so much easier to bear i think oh i've not read a research paper on it but i'd be very curious if there is some Psychological research about the benefits of altruism on on depression. I mean, this the biblical. It's better to give than receive. You know, it mm. really does have a beneficial impact on my moods when I'm actually active. It, I'm doing something. I believe it. Mm. And it was a great segue 
Alexandra to talk about activism because if we can now, because we've got about five minutes or so to go. Uh, I think we've got two minutes actually, Andy. Okay, I'm looking at a different clock. It's got nothing else on it. Right. Yeah. Uh, Very quickly, then we do have some activism coming up. Okay. And, and uh, one of those things is that the um, Australian Egg Corporation are having their annual general meeting in Geelong on Wednesday, November 23rd, and Evo Lens in conjunction with Melbourne Chicken Saver holding an event at 7.45. Now, details of what that will be um, are still being finalised, but they involve projections hush. and stuff like that. Yeah, hush, a little hush. bit... A little yes. bit hush-hush, but not so much. They're, they're there. Right. It's a public sort of event. You can see it. Um, but if you go to their Facebook page, EvoLens, and click on the events button, you'll be able to find everything about that. A couple of that. So that's Wednesday, November 23rd in Geelong at 7.45pm. Um, and if you also have a look, they have another one coming up a couple of days later on the 25th in Melbourne. So I encourage everybody to get along because if anyone's, if you've seen any of the stuff that's been going on about the egg industry in Australia... Um, you need to have a look at this. And the second one is the coalition against, newly formed Coalition Against Greyhound Racing in Ballarat and the driving force of that is a young fellow by the name of Joshua Drakeford. And, pardon me, they've got an action in uh, Sturt Street, Mal, Ballarat on Saturday, November 12th at 11 o'clock to bring a public awareness um, to the plight of greyhounds in Australia. Um, uh, I'm just going to have to interrupt. We never asked a vital question that we ask all our guests um, of Alexandra, if people want to get in contact, join the campaign, support the campaign, where do people go? So the best way to follow what we're doing and the launching of our campaigns is through our Facebook page, which is just Cruelty Free Labs Australia. But if you do want to contact me directly, which is encrypted, it's cruelty-free-labs at protonmail.com. So if you have any information or you'd like to sort of be involved behind the scenes, please contact me and... And that's yeah. an encrypted email yes. server. Okay. Yeah. What was that email address again? So it's cruelty-free-labs at protonmail.com. Okay, great. Um, I think we've got Encyclodelia wanted to come on very quickly, but you wanted me to give a quick debrief on Coalition Protection Race Horses. Yes? Absolutely, yes. Uh, we had our demo in Swanson Street on Monday. One of the most aggro demos of the year for us. It's always a bit of a hassle doing that one, not my favourite. But we certainly did express our displeasure at the racing industry and they heard our message yet again. Mm. So I'm sure they weren't particularly happy with that. And then we had our big picnic, uh, our yearly picnic outside the racetrack um, at the park next to Kensington Bowls Club, whose name I've forgotten. But that was on Tuesday and that went really well. That was uh, now renamed Farshans in the Field. Um, a lot more people. It was quite an upbeat event, not really a protest, more of a picnic um, fashion event. It was really good fun. Mm. So uh, two good events from CPR this week. I think that we're kind of on the home straight of the year, as it were, for CPR now. Yeah. The worst is over. Mm. I think we're concluded with the show, actually. I think uh, Nick's team is going to be on next with Encyclopedia. So we'll go out with the music. Um, thanks, Andy. Thank you, Roy. Thanks for operating the panel and, and everything today. And thank you, Alexandra, for coming in. It was absolutely fantastic to hear from you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.